But how do you cope when bad things happen? Do you complain? Maybe you complain to someone else or maybe you complain direct to God. Uh, Perhaps you feel sorry for yourself. Uh, Or maybe you're tempted to get even, to hurt the person who's hurt you. Uh, Peter writes his letter to Christians who bad things are happening to. They're persecuted for following Jesus, maybe by the Jews that they live in the midst of. Uh, Seems like around the time the letter was written is when uh, Nero started persecuting Christians and sending them to their deaths. Uh, And Peter says some shocking things in this letter. Uh, Two of them were in the passage that uh, Alicia read for us earlier. I don't know whether you noticed them as shocking. I didn't hear any sharp intakes of breath when they were read, so maybe you didn't notice them. But uh, look first at verse 9 of 1 Peter 3. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. God has called Christians to bless when they're cursed, uh, which seems to suggest that Uh, God has, as part of his plan, or part of, uh, that Christians are going to be cursed uh, because they are Christians. Or a bit further down in verse 14, uh, there's this shocking thing. But even if you should suffer for for what is right, you are blessed. Not only has God planned that suffering will happen, but there is something good that will come out of it. God will be blessed when or through your persecution, God will bless you through your persecution. That seems quite shocking, doesn't it? If we kept reading and we got down to chapter 4 verse 19, uh, we'd read these things as, Paul, as Peter summarises all that he's been teaching. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful God and continue to do good. Now I reckon there's two shocking things there. Firstly, that when you suffer, in some way it's God's will. Somehow the faithful creator is achieving his purposes in your suffering. The second shocking thing is what what Peter wants us to do when we're suffering. Rather than shake our fists at God, he says to commit ourselves into his loving care. This is our faithful creator who's bringing it and continue to do good despite what you're putting up with. Is that realistic? Is it shocking? How is it possible that suffering can be part of God's calling? How can it be a blessing? How can good come out of it? And how can your reaction to suffering actually serve to advance the Gospel? They're the questions we're going to think about today. Uh, Someone who experienced all of this was John Bunyan. Uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He spent most of 1660 to 1672 in prison. His crime? Daring to preach the gospel of Jesus in a church other than the Church of England. Before his imprisonment, his first wife had died, leaving him to care for four children, the oldest of which, Mary, was born blind. Uh, He remarried a year later, Within a year he was arrested, leaving Elizabeth pregnant to care for four children who were not her own with no means of support. While he was in prison, Elizabeth miscarried. 
Then for 12 years, off and on, she cared for those children on her own while bearing John and other two children. Once he was finally released in 1672, the persecutions and the arrests and the fear continued. That's pretty tough. One bad thing after another. And yet, Peter is teaching us that all of that is in some way a blessing and God's will. So how can good possibly come out of suffering like that? It's a question Peter comes to, answers again and again. Uh, Let's look at three purposes. Uh, Firstly, chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says that trials refine, purify, cleanse, strip away the rubbish from your faith. Chapter 1, verse 6, trials refine your faith. Now, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour. There are all sorts of things we're tempted to trust in in life. Our money, our intelligence, our planning, our health, our popularity. But when suffering of one sort or another comes, all of those supports are stripped away and we're forced to face the truth that it's only God who keeps us. It's our sovereign, all-wise God who's created us for his purposes. He's the only one worth trusting because none of those other things will stand. Uh, Suffering has a way of humbling us and driving us to God in dependence. Suffering has a way of prioritising for us what really matters. Uh, Does work, does pleasure, does a bank balance? Uh, Do any of those things really count when life itself is in the balance. Uh, trials can serve to refine or cleanse or purify our faith. Uh, the second good thing that can come out of suffering is that they are evidence that we're following Jesus. Uh, Peter doesn't try to explain suffering away, but uh, over in chapter 4, verse 12, he says we should be expecting it. It's a norm. It's a standard thing for Christians who are following Jesus. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Instead, verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Christ endured suffering for a purpose. Good came out of it. It brought our salvation. And if we're following Jesus, then we should expect that we will suffer as well. Jesus promised it. Peter puts it like this in uh, 2 verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus went through it for us, uh, so we are to follow him through it. Uh, And good can come out of it, just like good came out of Jesus' suffering. Uh, There's much more we could say on that, but let's keep moving. Uh, Thirdly, suffering shows that we're done with sin. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. When life is falling apart, uh, you've got choices to make about what really matters. And those difficult times can actually uh, harden you against the seductiveness of sin. When you are 
choosing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, you're actually saying his name, his glory, his purposes are more important than my comfort. His purposes matter more than my own selfishness. And God can actually use those decisions and that obedience to make you more like him. Suffering can show that you're done with sin. Uh, But there's a fourth good thing to come out of suffering. That's what we want to focus on today. It's part of this series. It can actually be good for the Gospel. It can make other people recognise Jesus in us as we endure in a way that they can't understand. Uh, Now the particular sorts of trials Peter's thinking about are not sort of general trials, sickness and unemployment and uh, such things. Uh, but persecution specifically for being a Christian. We're not particularly familiar with that, but there are plenty of places in the world, our Christian brothers and sisters, for whom it's a daily occurrence. And Peter says the way we respond to the people who persecute us can produce good. So, for example, chapter uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Choose to bless, to pray for, to love, uh, to give good things to those people who insult you, who persecute you, who ridicule you, who take things away from you. Uh, Because God's blessing for you depends on that. It depends on you giving those things to others. We think our life will be better if we pay back. But God's promise is our life will be be better when we repay with good instead. That's the way we're to respond. God intends us uh, to respond that way. 4.19, we read before, uh, it's uh, one of those shocking verses. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. God intends us to respond that way, to respond with love when we're hated, to respond with patience when people are angry with us, not to get even, not to do evil. Uh, And when we choose to do that, we're actually saying, we're committing in faith and saying to God, I don't understand why I'm receiving this, but you made me, Uh, You know what's best and so I'm going to keep trusting you and blessing in the face of persecution. So why on earth could it be God's will that you receive those sorts of curses and that sort of persecution? 2 verse 12, uh, here's an example of one of the good things that can come out of it. Uh, Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Your positive response to their negative uh, can actually cause those people to recognise something different, can recognise Jesus in you. Uh, it sounds simple, doesn't it? Okay, It's not a difficult thing to understand, but gee, it can be difficult to do, can't it? <clears throat> Uh, just yesterday I was walking through the shopping centre and I was whistling and there was a, a guy sort of in front of me with his arms like this and uh, he was sort of stomping past me and he turned around and said, what the F are you whistling for? 
And I said, oh, I guess because I'm happy. And he said, well, shut the F up. And, well, I, how do I respond to that? Well, bless you, brother. I'd like to say I did that, but um, I said nothing, really. And I, my first thought was, well, I could say, don't tell me what to do, but I might have ended up with a punch on the nose. But it's easy to know the right thing, but it can be harder to come out and say it, can't it? Uh, often we're tempted to do the opposite of what we're supposed to do. Uh, we often want to respond in kind, to respond with impatience or anger, uh, to curse when we're cursed. That's the natural, that's the human way. Sometimes we're tempted uh, to use, uh, to get defensive or embarrassed when we're ridiculed. Uh, we shut up and say nothing rather than speak uh, for Jesus or to bless. We can also blame God. It's another response, a, a sinful response, is to, is to feel sorry for ourselves, to complain to God, accuse him of not caring, uh, accuse him of not being able to change our situation or not noticing. One of the other sinful responses when we suffer like this is we can feel sorry for ourselves uh, and then we can do something to try and make ourselves feel better. Maybe we get angry at somebody else. We kick the dog or we get angry at our spouse or our kids because they're easy targets. Another response is we can fall into, uh, we can give into a temptation, a habitual temptation that we, we seem to turn to whenever we're feeling low. Maybe it's shopping or some other sort of self-indulgent sin. And we say to ourselves, well, I deserve this little, this little perk, this little nice thing because, well, I've been treated so badly. When we're doing any of those things, we're shifting our identity from belonging to Christ, being a child of God who gives us good things, and instead we're looking to seek glory from something else. Uh, our identity becomes that of a sufferer, a victim. Uh, we're tempted to covet, covet what other people have or are. We're tempted to distrust God, uh, tempted to think he doesn't know what he's doing. I wonder how you respond uh, when tough things come, when people ridicule you or insult you. Is your first reaction to sin or is it to respond with blessing, to live godly lives, to place yourself into God's care who loves you as your Heavenly Father? Peter says, do good, say good, people will see it and give praise to God. Well, the next hint Peter gives us about responding to suffering is there in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Or some other translations have, do not fear their insults. I think uh, Alicia had a slightly different one. Uh, Do not fear their accusations. Do not fear uh, the things that uh, they make you scared with. Uh, Do not be frightened. But I think in the end it comes back to the the same thing, however you translate that. Don't fear. Uh, 
So often, in the face of suffering, Christians distinguish themselves by being able to face their persecutions and their suffering without some of the fears that the rest of the world has. Uh, We're able to face them without fear of rejection because we're accepted by God. We're able to face it without fear of pain because Jesus endured far worse than us for our sake. Christians are able to face their fears without uh, being afraid of sickness because the worst that can happen is you die, which is better by far. We're not able to, uh, we're able to be not afraid of death uh, because Jesus has beaten death. We're not afraid of losing family because we have a much greater, bigger, more joyful family. We have an eternity for family. We're not afraid of poverty because we have a rich inheritance that's been promised. Do not fear the things that the world fears, says Peter, in the face of your persecutions. Instead, he says, and here's part of the, reason, part of the way we can do that, verse 15, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. It's both an alternative and a technique, I think, for being able to not fear. It's an alternative to fear as well as being a tool to help us not fear. What does it mean to set apart Christ as Lord? Well, set apart, it comes from the word to make holy, to make special, to exalt. So, to exalt Christ as Lord, Lord over everything. In your hearts, make Jesus number one so that nothing comes before him. Everything is decided and defined in respect to him. He becomes the centre of your universe. That's the way you can not fear the things that everybody else fears. When Jesus is big, then those things become small. Christ means more to you than all of those things. They lose their power when Christ is set apart as Lord. Well, with those two attitudes in place, the the positive and the negative, Peter moves on to practicalities. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. A life where you do good despite suffering, a life lived without fear, is a life that people notice. And when they notice, and when they ask, be ready with an answer. Know how you're able to live without fear. Know why. Know what it is that Jesus has done for you and know how to explain it. And Peter adds, do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, Don't be so intense, don't Bible bash to such an extent that people won't want to ask you any more questions. Trust God. Gentleness and respectfulness shows that we're trusting God. One way to talk about what Jesus has done in the face of things is the way Peter does it himself. Uh, You can see down there in verse 18. Verse 17, he said, It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, sometimes God's plan is that you might suffer and he brings good out of it. And then in verse 18, he actually gives us a reason for what he says in verse 17. 
Uh, Why is it sometimes God's plan to suffer? Uh, Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Why might we have to suffer? Well, because that's exactly what Jesus did. He endured death even though he'd done nothing wrong. It was an unjust suffering. And it was all part of God's plan so that he could bring the righteous, uh, so he could make people righteous, so that we could come to God. There was a purpose in that suffering. And even though he suffered, that wasn't the end. God had a bigger plan. He moved through death. And so that's exactly the sort of thing we might be able to do when someone says to you, so why is that happening to you? I thought God was supposed to look after you Christians. I thought he was supposed to love you and things were supposed to go well. Well, your answer might be something like like Peter has said. You might say, well, I don't know exactly why this is happening to me, but I know that Jesus went through far worse than I'm putting up with. Jesus did it because he loved me and God planned it that way because he wanted to use Jesus to deal with the mess of the world And in God's plan, that wasn't the end for Jesus. And so I'm confident that this won't be the end for me either. That's a good way to to talk about what's uh, what's happening to you. It's a way that points people to Jesus. It's about your experience. It's gentle. It's respectful. Uh, It's the way Peter uh, uh, uses it uh, here in this letter himself. Uh, Last week we looked at Paul, how he taught, but also how he did, and uh, we can see the same thing with Peter. Peter is not just a a theory lesson. Uh, He's someone who lived this sort of response to suffering as well. He walked the talk. Uh, If we jump over to Acts chapter 3, you can flick over there in your Bible if you want, but most of the the verses will be up on the screen. Acts chapter 3, you might know the story of him uh, healing the lame man in Jesus' name, Uh, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Uh, In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he does. Uh, And then he gives the reason for the hope that he's got. He preaches about Jesus, verse 13, uh, who God raised to life. If we jump further on into chapter 4, the priests and the temple guards arrest Peter and John, they throw them in jail. This is unjust suffering for the name of Jesus. But in verse 4 we read, Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. That's exactly the way Peter's described it in his letter, isn't it? Uh, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Well, at that point, Peter uh, Peter speaks up against the Sanhedrin, the same group who put Jesus to death about... 50 or 60 days earlier. Uh, And in verse 12 of Acts 4, he says to them, Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. There's no other name by which men must be saved. And look at how the Sanhedrin responds to those words and the actions of Peter. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Uh, People notice. The persecutors notice. Uh, They warn them not to preach anymore. Look at Peter and John's response in verse 19. 
Uh, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. We can't help but speak about what we've seen or heard. That's not fearing what people fear, is it? We don't care what you do to us. And that's what they do, they keep speaking. If we jump down to chapter 5, the apostles are still preaching, crowds gather, there are more miracles that are done. The Sanhedrin throw them in jail again, an angel opens the prison doors and uh, at daybreak they go straight back to the temple again. Verse 28, they're arrested again uh, and uh, the Sanhedrin says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. (coughs) Uh, Peter responds, we must obey God rather than men. That's not fearing. That's setting apart Christ as Lord. If we jump down to verse 40 of chapter 5, the apostles are flogged and told once more, don't speak about Jesus. Uh, But look at how the episode finishes. Does the flogging, does the persecution work? Well, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, they never stopped teaching. Well, it's following the example of Jesus himself, isn't it? Uh, Rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. The gospel spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth through Christians like Peter suffering and responding in a godly way. Peter taught it, Peter lived it. But what about John Bunyan? What do we learn from his life? How did his suffering cause the gospel to advance? Well, for Bunyan, the key to setting apart Christ as Lord in his heart was to focus on the Bible. One of Bunyan's biographers wrote this, Prison proved for Bunyan to be a hallowed place of communion with God because his suffering unlocked the word and the deepest fellowship with Christ he'd ever known. And then he quotes Bunyan, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I've seen him and felt him indeed. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I've seen things here that I'm persuaded I shall never, while in this world, be able to express. That's while he was locked in a prison cell and while his wife was trying to raise their family on her own. He especially cherished the promises of God as the key to open that door to the experience of heaven. I tell thee, friend, he writes, there are some promises that the Lord hath helped me to lay hold of, Jesus Christ, through and by that I would not have out of the Bible for as much gold and silver as can lie between York and London piled up to the stars. God used suffering and persecution as blessing. He used it to turn Bunyan to himself so that he might set apart Christ as Lord. 
Uh, Without Bunyan's persecution, the world probably would not have Pilgrim's Progress. The most widely distributed book in the world other than the Bible. George Whitfield said of the Pilgrim's Progress, it smells of the prison. It was written when the author was confined in jail and ministers never write or preach so well as when under the cross. The spirit of Christ and of glory then rests upon them. Let me finish with one of the the great scenes from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, the, the hero of the story, recalls when he's in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, that he's, he's got a key, a key to the door. It's a key called promise. And what's significant isn't just what the key is, but where the key has been hidden all along. What a fool I've been, he says, to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free in my chest pocket. I have a key called promise that I will... That, that will, I'm thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then, said Hopeful, that's good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out. Bunyan saying, God's promises hidden in our heart. That's how to respond to persecution the way God intends. Don't forget this one promise that we've learnt today. Hide this promise in your heart. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want to pray for persecution. We don't want to pray for suffering. But we do pray that you would make us like Jesus. We want that, or at least we want to want that. We pray that you would help us to set apart in our hearts Christ as Lord, that he would be number one, that he would control our thoughts our words, our hands and our feet, our decisions, our responses and that he might be glorified in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.